During this sermon series, which we have titled, The Call to Be a Courageous Christian, we are looking at Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. These teachings can help us understand the nature of the gospel and who we are meant to be as followers of Jesus in today's world. Last week, Dale reflected on Jesus' words from Matthew 5 on righteousness and the law. As Jesus urged his listeners to keep God's commandments and teach them to the people, Dale's sermon helped us to see that righteousness can be understood as living in right relationship with God and each other. Dale reminded us that we are following the wrong path when we focus on our own ability and efforts to be righteous. Instead, experiencing God's grace can lead us to choose right living in everything we do as a way to express our gratitude for God's abundant grace. In the next verses in Matthew, Jesus follows his teachings about righteousness and the law with a series of specific illustrations on living in right relationship with God and others by following the underlying purpose of the law rather than exactly sticking to the letter of the law. Today's passage is the first of Jesus' illustrations about following God's commandments. As we will hear, Jesus references the commandment, don't commit murder, as the starting point for his teaching. Just a note for you listeners, before we hear the scriptures, we are talking about murder today. I won't be saying anything graphic, but the scripture verse necessitates reflecting on the nature of murder, including defining what it is and why it happens. And this could be a sensitive subject for some. Okay, moving on to the scriptures. I've paired today's reading from Matthew with one from Genesis 9-6, which was part of God's covenant with Noah, predating the anti-murder law of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20-13, which says simply, you shall not murder, or the common English translation, do not kill. As you listen to the scripture readings, ponder how following the letter of the law in Genesis 9-6 might lead a person down the wrong path, and how Jesus' words are a redirection back to the underlying spirit of the law. Let us listen as the scripture is read. Our first reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 9. Whoever sheds human blood by a human, his blood will be shed. For in the divine image, God made human beings. Our second reading comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, Don't commit murder and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, You idiot! They will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, You fool! They will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and 
there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you are with them on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court and you will be thrown into prison. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you've paid the very last penny. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Because our scripture readings are dealing with the topic of murder, I thought we should start by defining what is murder. According to a study on homicide put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, a murder, a homicide, is the killing of a person by another person where the intent of the perpetrator was to kill or seriously injure the victim. Additionally, the killing must be unlawful. The UN says that the core element of intentional homicide is the complete liability of the perpetrator which differentiates it from killings related to armed conflict and war, self-inflicted death, killings due to legal interventions and justifiable homicides such as self-defense, and from deaths caused by reckless or negligent actions which were not intended to take a human life. In short, murder is illegally killing another person on purpose. Murder is a worldwide public health issue. According to the same UN study, in 2017, the victims of homicide worldwide totaled 464,000, which far surpassed the 89,000 killed in armed conflict, as well as the 26,000 fatal victims of terrorism. Stating the numbers on fatalities from war and terrorism is not to diminish the tragedies of those deaths, but to differentiate murder as putting the liability on the individual person. Because we are studying the Bible, I also looked at a Bible dictionary to confirm that the biblical definition of murder is similar to the UN's and the definitions are very close. According to one Bible dictionary, murder is the designed and malevolent taking of human life. In the Bible, the first murderer is Cain, who killed his brother Abel in Genesis 4. You may remember the story. Cain and Abel are the children of Adam and Eve. Cain makes an offering to the Lord of fruit, while Abel offers a choice meat offering, and the Lord prefers Abel's offering. Cain gets jealous and takes his brother out to the field to kill him. This first murder was driven by a personal motive. In our own time, the U.S. Center for Disease Control named personal conflicts as the number one major factor in murder, just as it was for Cain. From biblical times until now, personal conflicts are what drive people to commit this horrible crime. The drive to murder may not feel relatable, but who among us has not been in a personal conflict? In expounding on the law against murder, Jesus deals with the root cause of murder, personal conflicts, which is an experience familiar to everyone. 
Jesus was teaching his followers that they should go beyond the letter of the law and look to fulfill the root of the moral obligations presented in the law. Here's the law against murder from Genesis 9. Whoever sheds human blood, by a human his blood will be shed. For in the divine image God made human beings. The law against murder was meant to prevent murder by upholding the value of human life because human beings are made in the divine image. But in looking at Genesis 9-6, one can imagine how following the letter of the law could create a cycle of violence where murder is avenged with more killing. It is not logical to think that shedding more blood would be the purpose of the law, given that each person who would be killed, no matter the reason, is made in the divine image. Even in the case of the first murderer, Cain, God shields Cain from further violence by giving him a mark that protects him from being killed by another person. In the same spirit as God shielding Cain from further violence, Jesus' teaching halts the cycle of violence by stopping it before it can start. Instead of avenging a death too late, Jesus tackles the root cause of murder, anger, and conflict. He asks his disciples to consider what another person might have against them and to make an effort to make amends with that person. Jesus tells his disciples to leave their offering at the altar, go make amends, and come back to finish making the offering. Because Jesus places the making of amends in the context of making a religious offering, making things right with a brother or sister becomes part of the offering. For Jesus, making amends with a person you have wronged is an offering to God of the highest priority. Similarly, in referencing making friends with opponents on the way to court, we can see the pattern of escalation that Jesus is trying to counter. Make friends rather than escalate the conflict. Making amends with those you've wronged and making friends with opponents fulfills the command to not murder by quenching the anger that leads to homicide. As modern-day followers of Jesus, we can consider how Jesus' teaching might be relevant for us. In Jesus' way of teaching, he taught his followers first to consider the law, and second, consider the deeper obligation to right relationships with God and others that the law pointed to, both of which we will do today. First, Let's consider Jesus' directive to whether we might be angry with someone or whether a brother or sister might have something against us before we make an offering at the altar. Note that he is putting the responsibility on any disciple who was in the wrong, the one who is angry or may have harmed another, should be the one to go and make amends. For us in the context of today's worship, we often talk about offerings in terms of time, money, and talent. All the ways that we serve God through the work of the church. In following Jesus' teaching then, we can see that he is asking his disciples to understand calming our anger and making amends with those we have wronged as part of our worship of God, just as an offering is. For most of us, following the command to not murder is easy but the command to reflect honestly on our own feelings and behavior and make things right with others takes real courage. Speaking of courage, 
Let's take Jesus's directive a step further, just as Jesus did in elaborating on the law against murder, to get at the root intentions of the law. I've said that the root cause of murder is personal conflicts, but it turns out that there are some underlying risk factors that can create conditions where those personal conflicts are more likely to escalate to murder. Before I name these risk factors, let's remember that throughout the Gospels, Jesus directs his disciples to care for the least among them. In Matthew 25, Jesus specifically names the impoverished, the hungry, the thirsty, those lacking adequate resources like clothing, the foreigner, the sick, and the imprisoned as the people that the disciples are to care for. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Keeping Jesus' words in mind, listen to the factors that UN's Global Study on Homicide names as contributing to homicide. First is poverty. Poverty is a risk factor associated with violent crime, including murder and victimization, at both the individual and national level. At the individual level, people may resort to violent crime, like murder, as a means of survival. At a national level, a shrinking economy may be accompanied by reduced investment in law enforcement systems, leading to a state of lawlessness in which citizens are more exposed to violent crime. High levels of violence can also drive property values down and undermine business growth, thus exacerbating poverty, which can, in turn, lead to further violence. Poverty includes low access to mental health care, and physical health care, which can also contribute to conditions which lead to violence. Another risk factor is lack of access to high-quality schooling. Lack of access to education can diminish economic opportunities, leading people to get involved with delinquent and criminal behavior. Education in both formal and informal settings is a key element in reducing violence because it helps to strengthen key life skills that build resilience to crime and victimization, and also to increase employment opportunities, which act as a protective factor against crime and violence. Having large numbers of young people who are not economically active, not in employment or education or training, is linked to an increase in levels of homicide. 
Another risk factor is gender inequality. Societies with pronounced gender inequality tend to be characterized by high levels of interpersonal violence against women, including lethal violence. Conversely, the empowerment of women has been shown to be accompanied by a decrease in the level of intimate partner violence, greater autonomy and independence when also combined with a higher social status help to protect women from the risk of homicide. A fourth risk factor is income inequality. Countries with greater income inequality are more likely to have higher homicide rates than countries with less inequality. Economic developments that exacerbate both income inequality both within and between countries can foster criminal violence. Additionally, socio-political inequality, notably unequal access to resources, is known to be a root cause of violent behavior. Marginalized people are more likely to become victims of violence, which makes their efforts to enjoy equal rights even more arduous. Unequal access to education and health services has been found to be linked to higher levels of homicide, as have higher infant mortality rates. Finally, the UN also lists poorly managed high-density cities, conflict over resources affected by climate change, and issues within the criminal justice and prison systems as factors that contribute to conditions leading to homicide. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was speaking to his most committed disciples about how they should not be content to simply follow the law, but to seek to fulfill the law with, either, with even greater righteousness. He tells them to think about what a brother or sister might have against them and to make amends. Knowing what we know now about murder, we can see that all of the risk factors that affect those that Jesus names as the least of our brothers and sisters are the same factors that increase the risks of murder. For us as followers of Jesus, if we are seeking to fulfill the law and Jesus' directives with even greater righteousness, just as he asked of the disciples long ago, then we will try to live in right relationship with our brothers and sisters who may be more at risk of committing murder or of being murdered. If we want to bring down the murder rate in the world in accordance with the teachings of Jesus, we must make things right with our brothers and sisters by working to alleviate poverty and income inequality and climate change and advocating for increased access to mental and physical health care, better access to education, increased gender equality, increased social political equality, and a fairer criminal justice system. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus calls us to fulfill a courageous vision of God's shalom, for all to live together in peace, wholeness, health, safety, and prosperity. Jesus' directive to his disciples to fulfill the command to not murder by calming our anger, making amends with brothers and sisters, and making friends with opponents, points us in the direction of God's kingdom. Jesus encouraged the disciples to fulfill the root obligation of the law, just as we should today. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we never do it alone. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus promises that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he is among us and will be with us until the end of the age. May the Spirit of God guide us towards peace with all our brothers and sisters. Amen.